Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 22, Fishing, Reeling, and Landing. Sponsors, that is. I uh, just got back from the Coda test, and uh, that's at the Circuit of Americas for the Trans Am with Nitro Motorsports, and obviously you can probably tell by my voice, I came back sick. So this is why my voice sounds this way, and I apologize, but uh, I guess today I'll try to let Alicia do more of the speaking about things, since this is about sponsorship acquisition. And this is um, the lifeblood of a race team, you know, or any real startup racing program or even in the infancy of a you know um, a father uh, trying to find sponsorship for his his children so um, Alicia has um, been involved in this uh, at uh, an early age and doing a lot of different things uh, that I think really are relative to uh, you know going out and trying to procure sponsorship um, from here you know she she um, is very well versed in uh, finding sponsorship, you know, and reeling them in, quantifying what they can do, understanding their obstacles as a company, and then, you know, basically uh, trying to nurture them along and bring them on. And sometimes, uh, you know, when you're trying to put a, a sponsorship program together, it's difficult because you start out sometimes with nothing, no pipeline. So it takes a while before that you can procure entities that have interest, show interest, and then your job is to try to you know give them information and try to prove or disprove what type of a platform that you can create for them from a marketing perspective and uh, and or a promotional perspective. So, you know, having a vertically integrated marketing platform is crucial, uh, especially in motorsports, just because there's so many intangibles and you can provide provide so much value. So I'm going to turn it over to Alicia and let her start giving you some insight into uh, the the sponsorship acquisition process. Well, first of all, I just want to give a little bit about my background as to why I was able to talk to complete strangers. So I had kind of a missionary type upbringing. As soon as I was old enough to walk and talk, I was out in the ministry work talking to complete strangers about the Bible, but also my grooming and trying to convince perfect strangers that they wanted something they didn't know that they wanted was that my dad was an entrepreneur, always selling something. The old adage, you could sell a freezer to an Eskimo, that was him. He was very good at it, and he taught me to be good at it. Early on, my dad was a timber cutter, and we lived in the woods in northern Idaho and Montana. But after the timber industry was massacred by the spotted owl agenda of the 80s on the West Coast, and that's a subject for another time, he had to find a way to make a living in a different way. So he had only an eighth grade education. Uh, his father had been killed when he was 15, and he became the head of the household at that time. He was married by 16, and then yours truly came along at 17. So at a very young age, he um, had to be good at selling himself. So he became very good at sales. He started selling propane torches to farmers in eastern Washington and Oregon, and he was so good at that that even the farmers who could not afford to pay cash um, or check or even credit, they would trade him their products that they grew for the torches. 
And then my dad would convert that to cash by having my brother and myself go sell those products. And so we did this by either going door to door, street corners, trade shows, flea markets, sidewalks, you name it, we were selling it. And that began my sales career. One time he sold torches to a strawberry farmer. So as you can imagine, I was selling strawberries all summer long. One time it was a hazelnut farmer. And still to this day, I cannot stand hazelnuts. We had bags and bags of burlap hazelnuts that we would have to haul on our bicycles all over our neighborhood. Um, So I was selling everything from apples to gold jewelry from Alaska, which we actually went up in Alaska, spent some time in Alaska and got that. But I remember the best trade was the Hooterites, which is like similar to what um, Eastern people, you know, call the Amish people. Um, The Hooterites are very similar in their lifestyle. And we sold them uh, torches for their equipment and they traded us their farm churned butter that was frozen in these big logs. And then it was called Russian kvass, which was a type of unfiltered vodka. And I remember I sold a lot of kvass that year. I had a lot of extra school clothes shopping money on that one. So um, after he left that job, he began selling milk alternatives, nutritional products, a lot of MLM companies. And despite what you feel about MLMs, they definitely teach you how to sell. Um, I was on the state fair circuit all summer. Um, every um, school break, we were doing a state fair. So I learned the art of the sale by really watching the best of the best and how that they would get around people's objections. And they also had to educate the consumer at the same time. So um, long story short, I met Derek because of a nutritional product I was actually selling. I was the marketing director and we began dating. And I knew right away that I could help him get sponsors. I could tell that the team and himself um, you know, were struggling at the time to get those. And I did land a few small ones for him right away. And so then he trusted me and, and the rest is history. So I'm going to go over just a few points that I have learned. And it is the same principles, whether you're selling a crate of apples or a million-dollar NASCAR sponsorship. Um, what I get from a lot of people that I've tried to train is I can't sell. I'm shy. My personality is not like yours, Elisha. I'm not the right type. I can't just get in people's faces. I can't talk to strangers. Well, I will say you do need to get over your fear of talking to strangers, but I do think that this can be overcome with some work. It, it can be. I'm proofing that. I think at an early age, I was really shy, and I wouldn't even look you in the eye directly. And I think my father realized that, you know, to be a good representative of a company or an extension of a company, you really needed to be able to be proficient, you know, both in and out of the race car. As he always said, you know, you need to be the most well-rounded. So he put me in a position to, you know, get on the front counter of the Cope Brothers Racing Engines where I had to deal with, you know, the day-to-day public. And, you know, th- those are difficult things when you have people coming in and there's, you know, a problem with an engine or to them conveying what they want and then pricing and then picking it up and not liking the price. And so you learn how to deal with people. You learn how to read people. Uh, and I think that was a key for me. And I think beyond that, I went on and I took some speech classes. My father made me available to all the radio stations. And then when there was some TV things to do, I was just, you know, afforded the opportunity to try to get me in front of this so that I could really learn and go through the process. So I became more comfortable and adept at doing it. And after you do an enormous amount of radio where you don't have people looking at you, it's a lot easier to, you know, convey things and come up with, you know, the way you like to speak, your inflections, things like that. 
And then beyond that, you know, I had to do, I had to start finding sponsorship. So, you know, being shy and, you know, from a sponsorship's perspective, you have to be able to, you know, I feel like back in the day when I was looking for sponsorship, I felt like I needed to see an audience. I know this day and age, you hear so much about everybody doing business through social media. And, you know, that's well and good. But honestly, in my opinion, you know, if you're going to get money out of somebody, you need an audience. You need to speak to the, to the right person. You need to be able to look them in the eye and convey to them what you do, how you do it. You have to understand the obstacles that they have as a company. What are they really looking for? And if you listen to the old adage, you know, uh, you want to create the link between the consumer, the brand, the trade, and the race car driver. That's what we used as our concept for racing sponsorship, meaning that you, you, you basically have the consumer, which is the person buying the product. You have, you know, the, the brand itself, which is what you're physically trying to, um, you know, convey and get people to purchase. And then the trade is where they're going to get it at. And then you have the race car driver who hopefully is the fixture that people are getting excited about and using as the, you know, the bait for them to want to, uh, you know, reciprocate and purchase and, 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 you know, get back behind that product. So that's what NASCAR, when they said they had 72% brand loyalty in the day, and they still do today, it's because they're able to create that link between the consumer brand trade and racing drivers. So, you know, those are a few things that I feel like are important, but yes, not being shy, getting outside your comfort level, which my dad made me do really paid dividends. Yes, absolutely. And there are some things that you don't need to be taught to you. They can be caught. In fact, there's some things that have to be caught. And I'll outline a few of them by a study that was done by Harvard on what the top salespeople have that make them the most successful salesman in the world. And it actually comes from a book by Tamara Bunty, Proverbs of Selling and Mastering Sales. I highly recommend this book. And she's actually from Charlotte. I've met her. And in the back of the book, I'm just going to read it because um, it is so good. And just kind of take note as to whether or not if you're searching for sponsorship or your business needs fundraising of any sort, if you're doing these things already or if you need help with them. So here are the attributes that this study found in all highly successful salespeople. Number one, they don't take no personally and allow it to make them feel like a failure. They have a high level of confidence or self-esteem. And although they might be disappointed, they're not devastated. And that was one thing I learned at a very early age being out in the ministry. I had people tell me no, slam doors in my face all the time. So I got pretty immune to it. But there's a lot of people out there that that's pretty hard on them when people say no, 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 when you get 10 no's and you just want to give up, but you have to keep going. Number two, 100% acceptance of responsibility for your results. These people that were the top salespeople did not blame the economy, which is what we hear all the time right now, the competition or their company for dips and closings. Instead, the worse things were, the harder they worked to make the negatives work to their advantage. Number three, above average ambition and desire to succeed. This is a key area because it affected priorities and how they spent their time on the job. High levels of empathy, the ability to put themselves in the customer's shoes, imagine their needs and concerns and respond appropriately. And I think that's something that Derek already alluded to. You need to overcome their obstacles. You need to be asking them the questions. If your pitch is just full of you talking, then you really need to readjust that because it should start with questions. 
What are your obstacles? Where do you want to go with this? Where have you been with this? How do you see your vision? What kind of marketing works, in your opinion? What kind of marketing doesn't work? Um, next one, intensely goal-oriented are these people. They always know what they are going after and how much progress they're making. So they keep themselves from distractions and sidetracks. They have above our willpower, above average, rather, willpower and determination. No matter how tempted they were to give up, they persisted towards their goals. Self-discipline was definitely a key. They were impeccably honest with their self and with the customer. And this is huge because as a Christian, I am not going to lie when they ask me for numbers, when they ask me for, you know, what's your TV package, when they ask how many times does the race car get seen, when they ask me, you know, how many times do we convert to a sale, what's our ROI. These are things that I'm very honest with. And no matter what the temptation to fudge on these numbers, you need to make sure that you're always building trust with your potential sponsorship. The trust is key. You have to gain that trust before they're going to give you their money. And then the ability to approach strangers, even when it's uncomfortable. And of course, we alluded to that. So I think um, all of these things put together will make a very, very top salesman. However, you might have one or two. You might have none. Maybe you need to work on that. But those are just the facts. Uh, the numbers don't lie. Those people studied had those type of attributes. But um, Derek, what would you say um, out of all of those traits that I discussed would be one that you, um, or a few, that you feel specifically are very, very important? Well, first of all, I think it's really understanding uh, the company that you're pitching, first and foremost. I think going understanding what you what you what you have available, first of all, how can you make a difference? And you talk about being honest. I think integrity and character are you know at a premium, uh, especially because you're you're going in and you're trying to ask for funding and you're creating a relationship. And relationships, whether they're you know you know a caring romantic relationship or whatever the case may be, it, it really comes down to trust and honesty. And, you know, if you can go in and you can, you know, explain to them what you're doing and who you're reaching, what you think the, you know, the reach is for them and give them realistic expectations. I think so many times, you know, we always try to, like you just alluded to, you try to boast or you try to like, you know, give the perception that it's bigger than what it really is. And I don't think, you know, honestly, I just don't have that in me to do that. And I was just really brutally honest and said, you know, obviously we were fortunate at that time that NASCAR was, you know, in its heyday and on the rise and the numbers spoke for themselves. You had quantifiable return on investment there, you know, with a cost per 30 second value for a TV spot, right? Because I mean, you could actually, we had access to, you know, all the ratings and all the numbers and in focus time. So you could justify it based off a cost per 30 second value. So you could put a real number to it. It's way more difficult to do that today. And especially if you're in a series or some type of a program that doesn't have a great deal of television. So it's hard to get those numbers because they really want them skewed anyways, right? Well, and in NASCAR, um, they only... Now, I don't know if it was this way in the early 90s, but now they only focus on the top 10 cars. So even though you do get the ratings as to how much TV time each car gets and sponsor gets, it's not going to be your car if you're riding mid-pack or to the back. Correct. You know, and so, you know, you do have, you yourself have obstacles. And again, you're, you know, if you're really maybe just beginning this process, right, you're learning as you go along, or, you know, maybe some of you are, 
you know, thinking that you got to hire somebody that has social media presence. Or I think this day and age, you know, a process can be an influencer, right? You know, if you have the opportunity to find or procure an influencer that has the willingness to, you know, partner up and you can do something, it can be mutually beneficial. There's things like that. But honestly, I believe the cold calling, I believe going back to your basics, grassroots marketing is probably the most effective way to build, to build a relationship. You need to get in the door. You physically need to sit down in front of somebody and look them in the eye because ultimately that's the only way you're going to convey to them. You can't do it on a, I know, maybe a Zoom call, you can do it. And through COVID, we were doing that. But if you can sit in front of somebody and they ask you the hard questions or you ask them a question and they tell you, you can read them. You can read their maybe being uncomfortable. You can read them about their excitement level. That's part of the process. You have to really go in there and, you know, try to get a feel for exactly what the temperament is. And then you have to be able to be quick on your feet. You know, I believe you have to be very nimble. It's like a small race team versus a huge team. When changes happen or things go on and, you know, you can be nimble and you can make a move or go another direction or you can offer more than what somebody else can do. So those are the things that I think make the biggest, I think, um, advantages for you. And when you alluded to, you know, some of the things before about, you know, uh, sometimes getting money out of people is difficult, right? And I mean, so sometimes you just got to look at alternatives. Uh, but you go in with a pretense on what you want to do. And, you know, you, you try to go into that deal first and see what you can do. But it really just comes down to a methodical approach. And I think, like you say, you have to just dig your heels in. And, you know, if you hear no, you're going to hear no a lot more than you hear one yes. But when you do get the one yes, it's going to be huge. That's right. So let's kind of um, dial this back a little bit. Let's discuss the art of cold calling. And um, then we'll uh, go into a little bit more on how Derek is talking about how to land the fish. So on the um, cold calling, typically, if you have a person who is used to doing cold calls, they should be making 40 a day. That's 10 dials every 30 minutes. That's not outrageous. That's not undoable. That's that is pretty average. And this is taking into consideration that they're going to get voicemails, they're going to get secretaries, they're going to get gatekeepers, and then sometimes they might get to the actual uh, decision maker and be able to give a pitch. So let's talk about the gatekeepers. This is something that I feel very strongly about, and I hope that this gives the most value to those of you who are trying to get a hold of the decision makers for your sponsorship. So Never pitch the gatekeeper, okay? The gatekeeper has been put in that position to screen the calls, hence that's his name. <laughs> so he's been instructed that unless they know the person, unless they have an appointment with the person or a relationship that's already been established to make sure that they stop everyone else. So you pitching the gatekeeper is never a good idea. Some people think that, oh, well, that's all I'm ever going to get is that person. So I better tell them what I'm all about so that they can tell the decision maker or the president or the marketing director or PR company, whoever it might be. This is very faulty thinking because believe me, they will never get your information correct. And actually, they're going to harm your chances because they're not going to reiterate the right things. And 
the worst thing you can do is have someone give the decision maker facts that are not true, even getting your name wrong, maybe your driver wrong, who you are, and then they're also going to give their opinion. You know, maybe they are a race fan and they're going to say, and unless you're Kyle Bush, you know, you're not going to be worth the sponsorship. It's very, very important that if you do get a person who is screening the calls, you just say, I need so-and-so to give me a call back. Or the best thing to say is, can I have their voicemail or can I have their extension? Also, if you've already established somewhat of relationship with the decision maker of that company, what you can do is, oh, you know what? You know, I have Bob's cell phone number, but I don't have his email. Can you give that to me? I'd rather not bother him while he's busy today. I'll just shoot him an email. And sometimes they'll give you the email. Now, you have to be a little bit crafty with that, but what you're trying to do is get information however you can, whether it be by phone, email, text, Facebook instant messenger to the decision maker of that company. Now, to find the decision maker, say it's this is complete cold call, you have never called them before, haven't gotten your first no yet, and we'll be talking about how many no's you're going to get here in a second, then you need to be doing, it's on, you're a fact-finding mission. You are finding out who is the marketing director, um, who is the president, who is the VP of marketing, um, does this company use a PR agency or do you do it on your own? You need to find out as much information as possible within that first 10 seconds and do it very friendly. Don't come across as salesy or creepy and just try to very efficiently get the information you need and then say thank you very much and get off the phone. That way they won't remember who you are. And the next time you call, you always act like you've never talked to them before. The worst thing you can do is say, oh, I've called three, four, five times. They're just going to continue to ghost you. If you've already set that precedent with them, then you're pretty much saying that the decision maker does not want to talk to you. So now let's talk how many touches you need to, to do before they bite. The average cold caller is going to cold call. Well, it won't be a cold call by the time you get to this penny, but seven to 10 times before you're actually going to talk to someone who would be able to write the check. So you have to be consistent. You're going to get told no over and over and over again. It has nothing to do with you. So try not to take it personally. It's really important that you continue to call, especially if you think that this company is worth your time. And most often, if you have started down a path for some reason, either because you have commonality with them, you have a driver that has commonality or can speak to the product, you need to continue down that path until someone absolutely says, the decision maker has said, no, do not call me anymore, or I will put a restraining order on you. That's the only reason you should stop calling. So the art of cold calling is not dead. There is social media. We live in the digital age. I totally get all that. You've got so many ways of getting to people, but sending them texts, sending them videos, sending them voice memos or messages is not going to get you a decision. You have to talk to them on the phone. You have to have that personal connection. There is no substitute for real human connection. And now let's talk about um, how we land it. So let's say that you have 
actually gotten an opportunity to either Zoom or get in front of the company in question. Some of the things that I've learned, and, and Derek is a master at this on how to land, but if they are wasting your time, if they're wishy-washy, if you can tell, I mean, I can tell within the first 30 seconds of me asking questions of them. So don't go in, again, don't go in immediately pitching yourself. You go in asking the questions. So, you know, what do you think of our proposal? What are your advertising obstacles right now? What have you done marketing-wise in the past? How do you feel that racing could enhance your marketing package? These are all very good questions. If they're answering your questions in a very wishy-washy way, well, I'm not so sure if, you know, this is the way we want to go, then I would just stop the conversation and say, well, thank you so much for your time and stand up. Many times just making that decision to do that, oh, no, 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 we're you know, sit back down. Let's, let's talk. You want to put them on the defensive. You should always be on the offense. So don't go in there thinking that you've got to rattle off all these facts about NASCAR and racing and your driver and this and that. You go in, you have the value. You have the upper hand. You have the higher ground. Always remember that. Well, I think something that maybe we, we need to allude to too is that with with you know with Google and all the resources you have at your disposal in this day and age, you know you have to put the work in as well. Meaning that you know you you should try to come up with as many facts and as many things about the company. And you know if you can find ways of what types of you know marketing they do, if you can find you know if you know somebody that you know has dealt with them before, you know there's a lot of things you can look at first and prior come up with a game plan. And <clears throat> excuse me, do your do your thing, do your thing about where you're really trying to, you know, understand your company, have all that stuff at your disposal prior to this, because that way, when you do go in there and you're asking the questions, you can speak intelligently about them. There's lots of information you can get beforehand and you can kind of convey to them that you kind of have an idea of what they're doing. And try to let them try to get to the point where they spend the time talking, leading you down the paths of what they're doing, what has been working for them. Right. And the more that they do and the more listening you do, the more you, more you parasite from the whole thing. And then you have to be able, we talked about thinking on your feet. That's the time that you just have to be figuring out in your mind as they're telling you the things you have to start clicking in you. What do I have? That's going to work for that. What is not going to work? You have to start, you know, putting two and two together and start figuring out, do I really have something for them? You know, and then if you do have certain things or relationships or, you know, opportunities, you know, from a business to business, which we haven't even talked about the business to business aspects or barter, we kind of touched on those. But if you have, you know, people that you know that you know, maybe kind of could, you know, work with that, you might be able to say, well, you know, we might have some opportunities that, you know, are in your vein that we might be able to put something together with. And for instance, so you just have to have them lead you down paths if possible, because it just opens up your mind to what resources you may have, you know, in relationships that you could do that might be a good, a good fit for them. So being able to do some type of due diligence prior to that is crucially important to you because it makes you go in and, you know, you feel a lot more confident when they say something because you already have some sense of what they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I had one um, person that went in with me to do a pitch and um, they immediately started talking about distribution. 
And the company that we were trying to get sponsorship from just looked at him and said, we do have national distribution. We're in every major retailer in the United States. And not only did it make him feel incredibly stupid, but it made myself look dumb as if my team had not done their due diligence. So that's very important. You don't ever assume anything. Always make sure that you do the research, like Derek said, before going in. And so that you have those questions that you don't know ready to ask. So if you know that they're in every retailer already, then distribution's not going to be their obstacle. So we're not going to spend much time on that. Maybe their obstacle is they just need some type of VIP experience for their um, their partners. And business to business, and we'll go ahead and, and go into this because that is a huge perk for small teams. Really, that's the only, um, I believe, in NASCAR, that is the one thing that small teams can do better. And that is because you can give them a personal experience on and off the track. Big teams don't care. Small teams do. And so that personal relationship, you're able to give them hospitality at the holler. You're able to take them out to dinner. You're able to do tailgating. You're able to um, have your driver, if he is willing, and he better be, if he wants to keep sponsorship and be your driver in your car, um, be at those storefronts doing autograph signing, doing any type of radio spot that they need, doing any type of plug, um, anything and everything that you can do to offer additional value for minimal money, you should try to do. And um, let's talk a little bit about bartering too, because the trading system for small teams is, is very beneficial. Don't ever think that someone doesn't have something that you might need. We all have to pay money for food. We all have to pay money for hotels, for travel, for fuel. Think about things that you might be able to utilize from companies that would be an asset to you. Um, for instance, we used Boss Klein, a production company out of Raleigh, for a lot of um, pictures, media spots, um, time-lapse videos of the car getting wrapped. And um, they did several spots on our drivers, but they did beautiful masterpieces of Derek's Daytona 500, the 25th anniversary, and then that last race that you ran, did um, wonderful cameos, um, which they actually sold to the then president of Later, who had his family reunion there at Daytona that year. These are people that they might not have the cash in their marketing budget to spend on sponsoring a car, but they can trade you their services. And that's one that I thought of um, right away because that's something that small teams usually don't have access to. And you could have that type of high quality digital content and you're trading it off. So, so look for those things. Obviously, hotels, catering companies, um, graphics. Graphics people are great. They're willing to to trade their intellectual property for spot on the car. And that's how we originally um, started working with Ryan Daly. And now he is doing graphics for a number of different cup teams. Um, he's definitely a success story there. Well, like we said, there's a barter is something that's been going on, you know, for a very, very long time. And people didn't really have money, but they had crops and they had, you know, extra crops or things. And if you look at the business, there's a lot of businesses that don't have sell throughs or, you know, if they're, if they're forced into, you know, dealing with some large companies, you know, and they, they put product on the shelves and it doesn't go, it doesn't sell through, then a lot of them have to buy it back or they have to take it back. And so there's, you know, there's salvage. They have 
products out there that they have, you know, salvage products, still close dated products. There's all kinds of things. So there are opportunities to, you know, to take, you know, product or services uh, and then take that, resell that at a discounted rate and try to find a way that you create some revenue for yourself too. All I'm trying to explain is that there's always, you know, three ways to skin the cat. So if you can't get money or they don't have the money, then they obviously have spent their money on product. They've already spent it on putting it on the shelves or paying somebody to put it on the shelves and they haven't sold it through. So they're going to get it back or they have a bunch of in inventory. So maybe you're, again, it's, it's hard work, but you have to get outside the box and you got to start thinking, okay, do I know anybody <laughs> that I can get this kind of product from and go and sell it? you know, and get a portion of money back and then put their name on the car and you create a relationship because once again, you've done something for them. You've created goodwill. You took product off and you gave them a marketing opportunity that they can write off. So they basically can write off the fact that that inventory uh, that they've given you, they can, you can give them marketing on the car. You get a little bit of money to go put it on the car. You create a relationship and your son or your daughter or whoever has a uniform with the name of a company on it, you create positive perception about your kid and a brand, and now you just created the link between that brand and the race car driver. Whether you could you know, create it with a trade or not, but you've done the first step. You've taken, you've gotten your, you know, your child an opportunity to wear a brand, you've opened the door to a relationship, and from when there's one relationship, they know other people, then it just starts to snowball from there. So. It only takes one before you start to be able to, you know, get things kind of kind of rolling. So, you know, again, you talk about listening to your friends and their relationships or what companies they own, um, who they work for. Those are the things you got to think about and look at and find out what do I have in my, you know, immediate, you know, surroundings of the people I know and what they have and what resources is there, right? And instead of going to them and asking them for $2,000 or $10,000, ask them what they could do. You know, is there an opportunity with, with their retailers or their suppliers or their vendors or whatever? Look for those types of things. And then, like you say, you know, I think it's very important. And I said this to, uh, you know, uh, Corey Himes' father this week at Coda, you know, that, you know, here he is. He's a a Toyota development driver and you know he's got some funding from Toyota but he has dad has to come up with the rest of the money so you know there's a burden and there's a burden on a lot of people out there from the team owners that have to have sponsorship you know from the dads and the parents that are funding their kids so there's always burdens you have to find a way to you know mitigate some of that burden so look for ways to do it and you know it doesn't have to be big to start but you know just you have to get a ball rolling and once one thing works for you you can continue to go down that path until it fades and go down another path yes constantly looking for someone or something that can be of benefit to that sponsor. And um, you've already said the relationships in the B2B, that is so important because it does not cost you a thing and very little time to connect them to someone. So keep a running tally, like pen and paper, put pen to paper, or if you you know like putting notes in your phone or, or you have a file on your computer. But every time you come across someone that says, hey, I'm looking for XYZ. 
Mark that down. It might not mean anything to you then, but then maybe you find a sponsor six months down the road and you've got that person's name and number that, oh, they were looking for that type of company. It's so important to drop names constantly to these people because it makes them aware that you have a funnel and you're going to continue to funnel names to them. Don't ever be stingy with your connections because they, if they benefit your sponsor, your sponsor knows who they came from. And if you have a sponsor that doesn't have any integrity and they go with another team and believe you me, we've had so many happen, but let me tell you this. There's no need to keep your connections and your value to your sponsor close to the vest. If they're going to leave you, they're going to leave you regardless of how well you treat them. So if you get a very good sponsor, they have high values just like you do, and they have integrity, they'll stick with you forever, just like all the sponsors that we've had that are still here that we mention all the time. They understand our obstacles. They trust that we have the integrity that we've always shown to them. And over and over and over again, we've tried to build that business to business relationship so that when we invite people to the track that we think might be a good connection for them and that materializes, that's a win for them. It's a win for us. Yeah. You know, another thing is, you know, don't be afraid to go after product sponsorship initially. I mean, that's really how I started to get really acclimated to doing it and trying to get some things that I needed because ultimately you have to spend money on the parts and the pieces or the things that you have for the, uh, the race car, whether it was a driver's helmet or a driver's uniform or, you know, ball joints for the car or shock absorbers, whatever the case may be, maybe start with something like that and get it, get a, you know, a relationship built because they're ultimately going to go to trade shows. They're ultimately going to be show, showing their wares out at certain functions or activities. <coughs> Excuse me. I would say at that point there, you want to be able to go to those functions, be start getting your son or your daughter representing that company, be seen. And I know how that feels. I've been at the front of grocery stores when I was young thinking nobody knows why I'm here and why am I doing this? But believe me, it is a necessary evil and they get used to being able to talk to people, put themselves out there and carry on a discussion. And they see that you are getting represented by a company, whether they're giving you money or product, there's, it's a place to start. So there are a lot of avenues and they'll all pay dividends. So you just have to start, you know, put your thinking cap on, sit down and start writing things down and just start coming up with a concept of how to attack. First of all, who you know, what do you know, and where do you want to go? And then start there. Absolutely. And don't discount anyone. Don't tell yourself a story that, oh, that person can't be of any value to me, or that person is not in my industry, or um, you know, that company or that product um, is not going to appeal to this particular sponsor when you're thinking of business to business opportunities or relationships that could be mutually beneficial because you never know who that person knows. Maybe they might work a nine to five job at, you know, an industry or a service related field that does not have any bearing on the sponsor and what they're looking for, but maybe their um, son, daughter, cousin, mom, dad works for a company that your sponsor is actively seeking. I think the one thing that I've learned over the years is that everybody that comes to the races or comes to an event or comes to see what you're doing, they want to be able to leave telling a story. They want to leave with a story. 
I always felt like it was my job to make them leave with me touching them in some way, shape, or form, whether it's signing an autograph, spending a few extra minutes, you know, taking a picture, talking to them a little bit more, uh, spending, spending extra time, going the extra mile, or there's other situations that you do. You go to a function or activity and, you know, you spend more time or you talk to their parents. When they leave, they are taking this story away and they're telling it to countless other people because that's what they wanted and that's what they needed and that's what they wanted to talk about from there on. So all of that snowballs, all of that is just a continuation of you spending extra time, going the extra mile and you know, creating a persona out there that you've taken time with these people, you know, you're interested in what people are doing and what they're doing. And, you know, you're happy that they're there watching you and paying attention to your career. Those are, that's going the extra mile, you know, and like I said, you don't get outworked, but you always give more than you get. And if you can do those things there, whether you get $5,000 and they get 10 or $15,000 with a sponsorship or, or, you know, reciprocation or whatever, you want them to get more than what you got because that's a mutually beneficial relationship and you're going to get return on that. That's a very Christian attitude too. And I love that because you're out there to serve people. And so if they're getting a win and it's even bigger than yours, you all win. You're you're all here on this earth to serve people and to make a living. And I also like too that personal responsibility for you as a person. You know, I challenge each and every one of you to always make sure that you're doing your best in trying to obviously, gain whatever sponsorship you can or funds um, for your cause. But remember that it's not luck. I've heard this so many times by people that work with me and they look at teams that land sponsors or they see a driver that gets the sponsor that they had been going after for the, I mean, how many times have we heard this? That was my sponsor. I called them first and now he ends up with it. He's so lucky. It's not luck, folks. It's it's consistency, it's determination, something resonated with that sponsor, with that driver, they had a better salesman. So it's not luck. God doesn't choose favorites. There's always, it's hard work. There's always going to be a bigger fish in the pond. There's going to be uh, another car owner that has more clout, has a bigger name. There's going to be a driver that's maybe got a bigger name or has won more races. That's what you're up against. You have to look at you know your arena and you have to figure out you know, who am I up against? What am I trying to do? How am I different, first of all? And I think that's what I did at a very early age is when I was going to Winston, Winston Cup racing, I, I said, how am I going to differ, differentiate myself from the rest of these guys? I mean, I come 3,000 miles from here. I have no money. I, you know, have some talent, but certainly probably not the best race car driver, but I can drive one of these things. And what can I do? The one thing I can do is I can sell. I can convey to people what I need to, to get them to believe in me, first of all, and or what I can do for them. And I think ultimately that goes a long ways. And I would wear a suit and tie to every function that I went to. Yes, you were very ridiculed for that. I was ridiculed for it because in the South, you know, they wanted to wear jeans and they, they didn't really, you know, they didn't want that. And when they see that, they think you're trying to be better than them. When in fact, I was just trying to separate myself from them. And I was more comfortable in a suit and tie. So I felt like if people saw that I took the time to dress up, 
and show them respect to come to sign autographs all day long for these people and take pictures with them. When they left with that picture, I didn't look like a hooligan. I looked like a businessman representing my sponsor. And I took the time to look the part so that they had a special moment or token when they left that event because they spent time, energy, and money to come. They deserved that. That's the way I looked at it. And I do recall that those um, top VPs at Pure Later at the time, they respected that about you, that you always showed up dressed very professionally and classy, and you could go straight from a press conference to you know a commercial if need be, and then you know walk out on the track and get into your driver's suit. They appreciated that you know you can never be overdressed. You can be underdressed for an occasion. But you've always told me that many times. I'll ask you, am I overdressed? And you always say, baby, you can never be overdressed. You can just be underdressed. So always remember that. That's a good one. Um, Also, too, before I forget, follow-up is very, very important. And people have different um, ideas about the CRMs. We had one, too, um, you know, and Starcom felt we were wasting money on it. And maybe we were, maybe we weren't, but there needs to be a follow-up system. Make sure that you're keeping one, whether you're a small team, that you have it in files when you call these people and what the response was, how many times did you call them? Because you should really call back on those companies that you feel are a good fit at least 12 times a year. And um, you will reap the benefits if you just keep consistency. And when we talk about landing the fish, yes. Right? That is the ultimate goal, right? It's getting it closed. So many people, I've been in with so many people that, you know, are bird dogs out there. All they do is they try to get in the door, they get a deal going, and then they bring it to you and they get their 10%. They get a percentage of what you're doing, but they can't ever close a deal. They don't know how to ask for the money. They don't know how to, they don't know your business. They don't know exactly what your needs are, what you're willing to do. It comes down to you. So again, we talk about that personal eye-to-eye contact, you have to sit in a boardroom with somebody and you have to be able to convey to them that you're appreciative of this opportunity and you know what it means and here's what I am going to do for you. This will work for you, you know, and I, I countless times I have, you know, I have done those things and I have conveyed that to people, but you can't do it, you know, by somebody else doing the deal for you. Exactly. So if you have what we call a bird dog and they're out there finding companies that might be interested. Give them a commission. Tell them no matter what, no matter who lands this deal, I've always told all my bird dogs, it doesn't matter if I land it, you land it, Sally Sue lands it, you get the commission. And and I don't have it with you at all. I land the deal. It's your deal because you brought me this name and you put me in front of these people. But by all means, you need to make the pitch. Nobody knows your team and your driver and you like you. And almost, I mean, there are some bird dogs that might be able to sell and land the deal, but I have found very few that are very effective. And they can sit in the board meeting with you. They can be on the Zoom with you. But you need to be the one that makes the final call. And asks for the money. And says, y'all ready to do this? We take credit card. We take wire transfer. I'll have my assistant give you the instructions. Yeah, You have to be able to ask the hard question. And the hard question is, this is right for you. 
You know it, and I know it. Let's get this deal done. I have a contract here. I can send it to you. You can turn it over to your attorneys, and we can look at it. Or I'll email you a copy. Here's a flash drive. Here's the contract. Give this to your attorney. Let's get this thing done. You have to be willing to get outside your comfort level, ask for the money. Right? All they can say is, is no. no. Yeah. You have to get used to not taking it personally. It's not hurting your feelings if they say no. And really, it's never a no. It's a not yet. That's what it is. It's a not yet. They're not ready yet. Yep. So I think with that, you know, uh, I'm excited that we got the opportunity to talk about this. And, you know, because I know that that's what most of, you know, the listeners that have young children and racing is they're always going to happen to spend the money themselves. And how do we get sponsors? It's a tough thing. But we will continue to elaborate on this more because this is a subject there's a lot more to talk about. And we just touched the surface of this. So we'll continue to bring more things uh, along on the sponsorship side, like proposals and things like that. So there's a lot more to it than just meets the eye. Uh, and it takes years to become proficient at it. And we'll discuss it more. But we really appreciate you listening. And uh, we hope you enjoyed this, you know, this uh, episode. Yes. And uh, your voice lasts all the way through, baby. I'm I'm very impressed. Barely. So we um, have very, very exciting news, like I alluded to on my Facebook Live. And I think we talked about this a little bit last week. So sometime this week, don't know the exact date, we will be launching the Race Theory website. And on that website is going to be all kinds of perks, incentives, uh, products, and a couple of them I think y'all are going to be very excited about and an opportunity for y'all to maybe have some interaction um, with Derek's ebook and uh, maybe even have a chance to feature one of your stories in it. So with that, we'll let you go and have a absolutely fabulous week and we will see you next time on Race Theory. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.